Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal Podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm going to be covering episodes 5 and 6 of Dark, Season 3. As I sat down to write the script for this episode of the podcast, I have to admit that I had no idea how it was going to turn out. Anyone who has seen my reactions to these two episodes will know that I did not enjoy the experience of watching them, and I am going to spend a not insignificant portion of this episode getting into the reasons why. I am hoping, though, that by talking through the events of this episode and my thoughts and feelings regarding them, I will manage to talk myself into enjoying them. Wish me luck. Episode 5 opens with post-apocalyptic businesswoman Claudia burying Regina's body. I have no idea if she knows what actually happened to her daughter, nor do I know if she realizes that Tronti is both alive and somewhere in Vinden. It doesn't matter, though. Regina is largely forgotten for these next two episodes, and Tronti is less than an afterthought. Instead, we're in the distant post-apocalypse with Charlotte, who is agreeing to be a pawn of Adams. From what I gather from her scenes over the course of this episode and the next, Charlotte and Elizabeth are being instructed to help stabilize their own little portion of the time loop. They're going back in time to when Charlotte was abducted, because they're going to be the ones to abduct her and take her to Tanhouse. I dread to think that they could also be the ones who caused his son and daughter-in-law to die in that car crash, let alone to do something to Tanhouse's actual granddaughter. Anyway... Jonas is having another dream. It's another of those hand-on-the-shoulder dreams, and this time he rolls over in his sleep to see the specter of Marta haunting him. When he wakes, he sees that real Marta B is still lying in bed beside him in the aftermath of their misguided, universe-ruining lovemaking. He hands her the yellow rain slicker, and there's symbolism there, though I still haven't fully settled on what it is that the yellow rain slicker actually means as a symbol, and he tells her that they have to get to the power plant. They have an apocalypse to avert. Downstairs, they have a brief confrontation with Katarina that does not at all go the way I would expect. Katarina proves herself an exceptionally lax mother here. Where is the woman who tried to shame Marta into never leaving the house after Mikkel's disappearance back in season one? This Katarina has a daughter who disappeared for at least a full day and refuses to answer any questions about what happened to her or who is the strange boy that she is with. And yet when Marta goes to leave, Katarina just lets her go. It is very silly and not at all reasonable parenting behavior. I'm not saying we should have gotten a cliché, Marta gets grounded but sneaks out anyway scene. I'm just saying that Katarina should probably show a bit more concern for her daughter's physical safety and mental state than she seems to. But the quality of this show's mothers are in general abysmal, so I don't know why I'm surprised. Speaking of Katarina, though, we now cut to another version of her, this one being the version who outright abandoned her daughter and eldest son. She's still in 1987, plotting to get Ulrich out of the mental hospital. She's going to steal her mother's keycard because she knows the route her mother takes to walk home. And she promises Ulrich that she's going to rescue him, and then they're going to rescue Mikkel, and then they will finally go home. He apologizes for everything that he's put her through, and that's nice, because it's the last thing he's ever going to say to her on screen. At Tanhouse's place, teen Charlotte comes in with a bug up her butt about time. She asks Tanhouse if it's possible to change the past, and he tells her that it isn't. Unfortunately, he decides that she's old enough now for the real answer on why he would want to change the past. He shows her a photo of a young family with a tiny child, and when Charlotte asks if that is her, he admits that it's not. The people in the photo are Tenhouse's son, daughter-in-law, and granddaughter, his real granddaughter. Charlotte, meanwhile, was given to him by two strange, unidentified women, Elizabeth and Charlotte's own older self, I assume, and his biological granddaughter's body was never found. Charlotte is devastated by this news, of course, and when she asks who her parents are, who she is, it's a giant misstep for Tanhouse to tell her that he does not know. He might not know the answer to the first question, no, but the answer to the second is obvious. Not the technical answer, sure, that Tanhouse does not know. 
But this is a moment of emotional crisis for Charlotte, and the emotional answer to this question is an obvious one. Charlotte is Tannhaus's granddaughter, no matter who her parents are or who else she might be in the grand scheme of things, and Tannhaus misses this opportunity to reaffirm their familial bond and comfort her here. It's just another instance of crap-ass parenting, and I feel really bad for Charlotte. Speaking of, in Vinden B, the girl in question is meeting once again with Alexander B. He tells her that the power plant indeed is going to be shut down next year, not today or tomorrow, which further hints that the cause of the Vinden B apocalypse is decidedly not Clausen-shaped. Charlotte's further questioning, though, that is very reminiscent of Clausen, and Alexander does not particularly enjoy it. But between it and the blackmail that Hannah has been putting him through, Alexander's conscience is going to stand in for Clausen's pig-headedness in this universe and bring on the end of days anyway. After burying her daughter, Claudia heads back to her apocalypse hidey hole and finds a snazzier version of herself there waiting for her. Claudia B is there to persuade Claudia A to join Eva's side rather than Adam's. She explains how the wormholes were created and that creation's relationship to the loop. Claudia B genuinely appears to be on Eva's side of things here, though I have persistent doubts that Claudia A ever is. I have a sneaking suspicion that may turn out to be fruitless that Crone Claudia as we remember her might have been working towards some third solution different from either Adam's or Eva's. I suspect that if we are to take a third option here, as TV tropes would put it, it will be with Crone Claudia's help. Elsewhere, in the immediate post-apocalypse, Peter and Elizabeth are ready to wander back into the radiation zone to look for signs of Francisca and Charlotte. Elizabeth is having an emotional crisis of her own here. She's ready to accept the emotional reality that her mother and sister are lost to her. If they're not dead, then surely they're as good as dead. Otherwise, they would have found each other by now. She tells Peter that she's not going with him, and she heads home. It is a terrible mistake that Peter does not go after her, but it's an understandable one. I had not gotten the feeling before now that the area outside Vinden was largely dangerous at this point in time. I had imagined it to be largely abandoned, and I hadn't thought for a second that Elizabeth would be in any particular danger when she and Peter parted ways for a little while. I was wrong. But back to Jonas and Marta B. They are breaking into the power plant, and Jonas, for the very first time in his entire life, is realizing that he's being manipulated. Unfortunately for him, it doesn't matter. Just like Adam, Eva knows every step of the loop. She knows that she's going to tell Jonas to go with Marta B to the power plant, but that he is instead going to go back to Eva's library. She knows that he's going to put himself right where he needs to be for time-traveling Marta to kill him. Back in the 80s, Charlotte is at the bus stop when a stranger arrives in Vinden. It's Peter, because who else would it be? And we get a bit of his backstory. His mom just died, which is why he's moving into his dad's place. And it is a bit of an awkward meet-cute. In Vinden B once again, Peter and Charlotte have confrontation. She's quite convinced that Helgi abducted Mads and has something to do with the body found in the bunker. And Charlotte decides to get into this shit right in front of Elizabeth, who, I will remind you, can hear in this universe... But when Peter hints at the truth between Ulrich and Charlotte, Charlotte gives up and leaves. Between this and their weird little meet-cute in the previous scene, I have got to reiterate for about the millionth time that I don't really understand how these two ever ended up together in the first place. I guess they just couldn't find anyone else in the tiny, incestuous dating pool that makes up Vinden? In the post-apocalypse, Elizabeth goes to her and Peter's trailer to find a stranger ransacking the place. When she tries to run, he slams her head into the window so that he can tie her up while she's unconscious. Then, when she wakes, he comes to the very deliberate decision to rape this terrified, defenseless, disabled little girl. Seriously, he looks at a terrified, maybe 12-year-old, and goes, Yeah, this is doing it for me. Truly nothing could have satisfied me more than this man's incredibly violent demise. You can literally watch this guy psych himself up to do what he knows he's going to do. And then in walks Peter, 
But Peter is not a terribly large man, nor is he very aggressive or athletic. What he is, though, is probably the best parent we have seen in this show. He's been pretty emotionally supportive of his daughters throughout the seasons. I think back to that episode in the first season, when he called Charlotte out on her brusque interrogation of Elizabeth about Noah. And even now, even after being bludgeoned in the head to the point that his attacker thinks he is down for the count, he still gets up and very nearly manages to kill his daughter's assailant. But not quite. He doesn't manage it, to my vast and unending disappointment, but this was no surprise. Noah knew and told us that this was going to happen, and I will have more to say about that in a minute. But Noah's lines earlier in the season meant that I knew Peter was done for the moment he walked in on this man trying to rape his daughter. Either Peter or Noah was going to walk through that door to stop this, because no part of me believed that Dark was actually going to have a little girl raped on screen, and that it was Peter meant that Peter was going to die. And he does. Brutally. He does his utter damnedest to kill this man, and though he fails very gruesomely, he does buy his daughter time to get a proper weapon to get the jump on this guy. She destroys the man's skull with a fire extinguisher, and it's a moment of triumph and catharsis for many in the audience. But it's not that for Elizabeth. For Elizabeth, this is a moment of trauma and devastation and existential threat. She has a head injury. She was just sexually assaulted. She just watched her father die. There is no one left in the world to protect her as far as she knows, and what is going to happen to her now? She's wrong, though. There is someone left in the post-apocalypse with an interest in protecting her. A sick, twisted, truly disgusting interest in protecting her. I know there are going to be people in the audience who think the Elizabeth-Noah relationship is romantic, or it's their ship or whatever, but just follow me for a minute here. Take a good look at what Noah actually does in this episode. He told us, episodes ago, that he knew what was going to happen. He specifically said that he was going to become Elizabeth's protector after her father was killed. The only way for their romance to not be one of the sickest things I have ever seen is for older Noah to have given younger Noah absolutely no context for the manner in which Peter died. For Noah not to be the most vile type of child-grooming psychopath, he absolutely must not know that Peter's death would happen because Elizabeth was being sexually assaulted. Otherwise, if Noah did know, then he sat back and waited for the child who will grow up to be the woman he supposedly loves, the woman he must conceive a child with, if nothing else, to be sexually assaulted, to have her father killed right in front of her, and to have no choice but to bash her attempted rapist head in herself. Just so that Noah can come around afterward and play protector while she's in the immediate aftermath of being traumatized, while she's mourning the loss of her father, while she's feeling more helpless and vulnerable than she's ever felt before, and while her father is not there to protect her from Noah. Honestly, I am ashamed of myself for having been kind of sad at Noah's death. The man I thought he was, the man who abducted and murdered children, was a well-intentioned extremist type of character. The dude that he's turned out to be, though? This motherfucker makes Edward Cullen look like a good boyfriend. Jesus fucking Christ. In the future of the post-apocalypse, though, Elizabeth gets a tiny hint of solace. She has been reunited not only with her mother, but also with Francisca, though it doesn't last long. Charlotte and Elizabeth leave, presumably to go deliver baby Charlotte to Tanhouse, and it's a distinct moment for me of suddenly wishing that I thought a real happy ending was in sight. I want this family to be whole again. I am no enormous fan of Charlotte or Francisca, and Charlotte and Peter's marriage is trash, but this hug between the three Doppler women is really touching, and I have really liked Peter since the beginning of the show, and I just want these fuckers to be happy. That I don't think they will be actually kind of hurts. Back to the two Claudias. Claudia B gives Claudia A the Tricatcher book, and I assume at this point that it must have been written by the Infinity Baby, I guess? Either way, Claudia B hands it over, tells Claudia A to preserve the knot, and then promises to see her again soon, just before poofing away with one of those nifty Vinden B time and universe hopping machines. After Marta B and Jonas have a big romantic moment that I cannot pretend I care about, Helena marches home through the woods after work. 
She's being followed by Katarina, and she knows it. That she's being followed, I mean, not who Katarina really is. When Helena confronts Katarina about trailing her, Katarina tries to mug her mother for the keycard, but Katarina is either not strong enough to overpower her mother or else too emotionally distraught to put her strength into the attempt. Her mother gets the better of her, and Katarina lets slip that Helena is her mom. But Helena doesn't put two and two together the way one might think she might. Instead of assuming that this familiar stranger is her teenage daughter all grown up, she assumes instead that this is the child she might have had in the 50s if she had not aborted, and that the aborted fetus has, and I wish I were joking as I say this, escaped hell to seek revenge. And I have thoughts on the subject. There are three instances of abortion attempts in this show so far. Hannah sought an abortion only to change her mind in the waiting room, which is a perfectly acceptable representation. Helena had an abortion because she was herself a child when she conceived a fetus. A plus, good representation so far. Adam, in the next episode, I don't know, he either tries to abort Marty's fetus and or kill her to kill it. It is a little unclear at this point, and it's extremely villainous compared to our other two abortions. It is a forced abortion if it's an abortion of the fetus at all, rather than a murder attempt on Marta. And of course, it's not being presented as anything other than a villainous act, not as far as I can tell, at least. But this thing with Helena, the last I heard of it, I was here for it. This episode, though, turns all of that on its head. Helena is a goddamn lunatic in this episode, and I will remind you now that she is the only woman who both wanted her abortion and went through with it. But she is apparently so consumed by guilt and shame and religious hate that she fully murders a woman because of the trauma of getting an abortion and, like, get the fuck out of here with that. Look, don't get me wrong. In a vacuum, there is nothing wrong with the story that is being told here. In a vacuum, there is nothing wrong, presumably something pretty accurate to reality even, in telling the story of a woman whose violence and religiosity led her to take a life because of delusions related to her abortion. But this story does not exist in a vacuum. No story does. And Helena's abortion does not exist in a vacuum either. This show has given us three fetuses that one or both parents have not wanted. Three fetuses that could have been aborted. One was aborted. One is involved in an unresolved attempt at a non-consensual abortion by the end of the next episode. The other was not aborted because the mother changed her mind. That the only woman who actually went through with terminating her fetus later went on to murder her actual child while ranting about the fetus inherently conflates the termination of a fetus with the murder of a child. And for the anti-choice advocates in the audience, this is your cue to leave, because I am not at any point in this podcast going to shy away from being very openly and vocally pro-choice. Aborting a fetus is in no way, shape, or form the same as killing an actual child. But the show, accidentally, I'm assuming, conflates the two in this scene, and I have got to be honest, I'm fucking pissed. It's awful, and it's offensive, and it really takes away from what should be a terribly emotional moment. When I'm watching Katarina's death, right when she was so close to truly being reunited with her husband, and watching all of the other little things that are happening here, like the reveal of who the lady in the lake is, and the parallel between Katarina's assault on Helena and Ulrich's assault on Helgi, and the explanation of how the St. Christopher medallion ended up on the beach, I should not be distracted by the metatextual implications of what is happening in this scene. And yet I am. Ultimately, this scene just left me incredibly angry with the writers, and I'll be honest, my anger here definitely colored the way I watched the rest of this episode and the next. Given that I had already been losing a bit of my faith in their ability to properly wrap up this story, this scene really helped make another big dent in what little optimism I have left. I'm not fully pessimistic at this point, but between this and some of the stuff I'll be getting into in my recap of the next episode, I've got to admit that I'm going to go into these final two episodes feeling distinctly neutral about the whole thing. 
But before our episode ends, we are going to be getting an explanation for that dream Marta B had earlier this season. It was half a sex dream and half a nightmare, and the nightmare half appeared to involve Marta witnessing the death of Jonas. I wasn't sure how that could happen, but I find to my surprise that I have been sort of vindicated in my assertion that there is a Vinden C, or a Vinden AA as I originally proposed it, a splinter universe if you will. Because Jonas, the Jonas who entered Vinden B, is not adult Jonas. He never grows up to be adult Jonas because he never grows up. Time-traveling Marta kills him here, meaning that there are more timelines after all. And we will see the splinter point in the next episode. It was the arrival of time-traveling Marta in Vinden A that did it. Two Vinden A timelines exist from then on. One Vinden A, in which Jonas grows up to become Adam, and another Vinden AA, in which Jonas travels to Vinden B, seduces Marta B, and is killed by time-traveling Marta, just as Marta A was killed by Adam. It is a whole big tangled mess, and based on the way the show tries to explain it in the next episode, I am not even sure that the writers properly understand the implications of what they've done here, but I will get into that shortly. In the meantime, Jonas dies on the floor with his own family tree spread out around his body like wings, and it is a beautiful shot that I am increasingly worried the writing here will not do justice. Like I said, this episode and the next have really made me lose my faith in these writers, and hopefully my explanation of why is going to make sense when I get into it a few minutes from now. In the meantime, though, we are on to the next episode. Adult Jonas wakes in 1888 with a dream to confirm for the audience that he was never taken into Vinden B. He is the other Jonas, the one who lived on in Vinden A instead of abandoning Vinden AA for Vinden B. And don't ask me right now if I think there's also a Vinden BB. I kind of suspect so, but the actual answer will depend on what happens with the Marta who is being held captive by Adam in this episode. So once I know what happens to her, I will know a little bit more about whether we're dealing with three versions of the universe, or four. After Jonas's death, Marta B. wanders home in her bloody yellow rain slicker. We bring our Lady Macbeth scenes count up to three, giving Marta one of her own after Helena's in the previous episode and Claudia's in the previous season. And, you know, it's the third time that this has happened in this show, and I am starting to get this sneaking suspicion that the trope here is a misogynistic one. Not that I mean Dark is being misogynistic by using it. I mean that the trope itself, the very use of these Lady Macbeth scenes in general, might be a misogynistic meme being used and reused in our culture's art. I'm not sure yet if I'm barking up the wrong tree on this point, so I genuinely want to know if anyone can think of good examples of this type of scene with a male character. Very specifically, I'm asking if anyone knows of good examples of a scene in which a man who has just committed murder or manslaughter is trying to wash the blood off his hands or perhaps his shirt as a symbol of his intense guilt and or emotional instability. Because I cannot think of any off the top of my head, though I can definitely think of other examples of female characters reenacting this scene in other shows and movies. Anyway, Magnus comes in to find Marta devastated, and while he is at first sympathetic, he disavows his sister entirely when she tries to explain to him why she is upset. Instead of supporting her, he shames her for letting their mom down, and suddenly I am horribly reminded of why I used to hate Magnus so much. He is so terribly often a horrible asshole. But he is not the one treating Marta the worst in this episode. That award goes to Adam, who is keeping his version of time-traveling Marta in a cage, and yes, I think there may be two versions of time-traveling Marta, just as there were briefly two versions of young Jonas. So I will now be calling Adam's time-traveling Marta variant Prisoner Marta. Sorry for the ongoing confusion on the whole keeping characters straight front, but don't blame me for that. Blame the show. Anyway, Adam has come to tell Marta about Old Tanhouse, Old Tanhouse's motives, and Adam's own present motivation. I think he's actually being honest here. Old Tanhouse, he says, wanted to create paradise, a world that utilized time travel to prevent all pain and misfortune. But Adam realizes that that is not possible, and so he has a whole other idea for how to fix the world. 
He wants to go full Dark Willow on it. If everyone's in pain, and pain is inevitable as long as you're alive, well, I guess it's time to just not be alive anymore, yeah? Remember how I used to describe Jonas as a fundamentally suicidal character? Yeah, this is just a larger-scale version of that. Again, I have gotta say that Jonas's ideation here is very familiar to me. It's that particular type of depression that can be articulated as a fundamental longing for cessation and nothingness, and I am really uncomfortable with how much I get it if that's what Adam is really all about. He has said before that what he really wants is to merely escape this hell, and I get that. That is what suicidal depression feels like. You are trapped in a loop. Nothing ever changes. Tragedy and pain and disappointment and despair are inevitable, and the only way to end it is for you to not exist at all. That's it. That's suicidal depression. And I think there's an interesting possibility here to genuinely interpret Adam's motivation as an intentional metaphor, except that I'm not yet certain how the rest of the sides here, so to speak, would fit into the metaphor. If Adam the Darkness is a metaphor for suicidal ideation, what does that make Eva's side of things a metaphor for? And what does it say about a hypothetical third option? I hope I'll have more to say on that front after I get to see the final two episodes, because I see something really interesting nestled into the themes here. I just don't know if I can really extract it yet. I don't know if there's enough substance to it to actually explore it, I guess. I hope there is, but we'll see. Anyway, Bartos B walks in on Alexander B yelling at Eric's dad on the phone, and Alexander is apparently having a particularly confessional type of day. For the first time in any universe that we know of, he admits to having stolen the identity of Alexander Coulter. He admits that his name is really Boris Nywold and that he is related to the crime that got someone killed. But he insists that he is not a murderer. Whatever happened before Alexander came to Vinden, it is not quite so bad as Bartos might assume. But Bartos's reasonable reaction to this unexpected revelation is clearly not the catharsis that Alexander was hoping for, and he appears to hold this moment against his son for the rest of the episode, so I must reiterate, the parents in this show suck. It is in no way, shape, or form Bartas's job to comfort his father in this scene, though that is clearly what Alexander was hoping for. He clearly wanted Bartas to give him a hug and reassure him that this doesn't change anything about their relationship, and that Bartas believes him, and that Alexander is surely a good person no matter what he's done, and that is not Bartas's job. That is not something you put on your kid. Your children are never required to fulfill your emotional needs, and it is awful to dump something like this on your kid at all, let alone to get all grumpy over them needing some space in the aftermath of the reveal. You as the parent are there to support your child's emotional needs, not the other way around. It is not a reciprocal relationship. That is not what raising a child is. And I am so disappointed in Alexander for his behavior here and I feel so bad for Bartos. But now we're on to Hannah B. Charlotte is at her house looking for Ulrich, and it is far more reasonable than when Hannah came to Katarina's house looking for him in the original universe. But Hannah behaves exactly the way that Katarina did when this happened to her, which, oddly, means that we get a redux of the Hannah sniffing Charlotte to confirm the infidelity scene that we got a few episodes ago. This, to me, is a perfect instance of my growing issues with the writing this season. The show seems to be increasingly sacrificing quality in favor of parallelism. This is something that, if it were written in novel form, a proper editor would have caught. An editor would have pointed out that this is a redundant waste of time. Either keep the first Hannah Sniff Charlotte scene and cut the second, or keep the second and cut the first. Doing both is little more than filler, which this show is above. Or so I thought until recently, as more and more slow-moving scenes are being included for little reason other than to amuse… the audience? The writers? someone other than me, with the novelty of seeing tidbits from season 1 and season 2 retreaded with increasingly tiny twists. 
The Ulrich recognizes man's body scene later in this episode is a particularly egregious example. It is almost identical to the iteration of the scene in Vinden A. There is no point to it. But like I said, Charlotte actually has a good reason to be at Ulrich's house. She has got evidence that he, being the chief of police, needs to see. The two pennies involved in the Helga and Mads and John Doe case have been analyzed, and it's impossible, but it appears to be true. They are the same penny. Charlotte posits that it seems that somehow they're the same penny at different points in time, and this prompts Ulrich's realization that perhaps the boy who looks like Mads is Mads. Back at Marta's house, Marta B. is giving herself a traumatic haircut in the mirror, and this is also something that I've seen before, that I'm beginning to suspect for the first time might be some unconscious misogyny permeating our culture's fictional work. I have seen this exact scene at least once before that I can immediately bring to mind. Buffy gives herself essentially this exact same haircut at one of her low points in Season 6 of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She grabs her long hair and she gives herself a shoulder-length chop job as an expression of her self-hatred and shame. It is literally the exact same scene as what Marta is doing here, and I am struggling to think if there's a male equivalent of this scene. Like, can anyone think of an instance in which a man stares in the mirror like this and, in a fit of pique, shaves off his facial hair or gives himself a buzz cut or something? On-screen haircuts like this for women are certainly not always related to emotional instability and self-hatred and shame and whatnot, but that connection is definitely a thing in our cultural consciousness. But for men, the opposite is almost always true. Men letting their hair grow is the thing that's often associated with mental instability, which is interesting, to say the least. I think there is something in there of the idea that bucking gender norms is inherently tied in our fiction with mental instability and emotional pain. Long hair is feminine, so it's associated with normal women and with men not quite in their right mind, and shorter hair is considered masculine, so it is associated with normal men and women not quite in their right mind. Again, I'm not saying anything specifically about dark here. I'm definitely not saying that I think the show is misogynistic or that it's purposefully using misogynistic tropes. I am just saying that I think there might be some gender stuff behind the treatment of hair in Western stories, and that this scene prompted me to really think about that possibility for the very first time. Like I said, it's interesting, if nothing else. Also interesting is what this haircut means for Marta B. It marks her as the Marta B we first saw on screen the one who rescued Jonas from the apocalypse, and the one who will later go on to find herself caged by Adam, and or killing Jonas. But before Marta goes anywhere, she has another conversation with her mom in which Katarina has got a lot of questions about what Marta's been up to for the past few days and gets no answers. It's a bit ridiculous, if you ask me. And now we come to what I think is the most important scene in the show so far. No, I am not joking. I don't fully understand what is happening here. I don't even think I fully understand what universe this is, if I'm being honest. So let's see if I can work my way through this. Claudia A. walks into the room where we have seen the unstable wormhole. As far as I know, this is the room where the nuclear contamination barrels were opened and the wormhole was formed in both the Vinden A universe and the Vinden B universe. But this woman, the woman who I have thought this entire time was Claudia A., she walks into the room where the unstable wormhole should be, and instead finds not a swirling mass of black and blue, but a small, stable sphere of glowing whitish yellow and orange. So where the fuck are we? I had been thinking this entire time that whenever I see this Claudia on screen, I am looking at businesswoman Claudia from Vinden A. But seeing this yellow orb here instead of that blue-black monstrosity, now I'm not so sure. Have I been tricked? Is this another universe entirely? Or is something going to happen here to turn this yellow-white sphere into that blue-black one? Because it's not like we haven't seen shades of this before. Eva's group's spherical time travel machines create glowing yellow-white sparkles when they are used, and the tunnels beneath Finn and A glowed yellow-white when Katarina went through at the end of last season. 
but we have not seen this yellow thing being used by either Eva's group or Adam's. Both Eva and Adam and the Trinity baby have been traveling using the blue-black thing, but no one, save this version of Claudia, has ever been seen anywhere near a yellow-white orb. Does this thing, whatever it is, present us with a solution to our problem? If so, how, and where did it come from, and what universe am I looking at? I'm lost, you guys. Whatever this is, though, Claudia X is stopped by another version of young Jonas. This one, I am tentatively assuming, is the young Jonas that grows up to become adult Jonas. He could, though, be an entirely other version. Anything is possible at this point, really. And I say that because from here we move into the show's attempt at an explanation of what is happening here. It is a bad one, though perhaps that's a translation thing? But Eva tries to explain this split in the timeline by using the infinity symbol as a kind of visual aid, and that is incredibly dumb. She's trying to say that the time loop here isn't strictly a loop in the sense of a circle or an oval, it is a loop in the sense of an infinity symbol, with a point at the center of the loop where the loop meets itself, which somehow allows for different decisions to be made. And can we all just admit that that doesn't make any goddamn sense? Let's not be fucking cute here. It would make sense if the explanation were that the interference of a second universe allows for a branching of the timeline in the immediate moment when the two universes meet. That wouldn't really make sense, technically speaking, but it would be a new rule that I would be content to allow in the collection of rules holding up this universe. So at the point when the universes meet, each universe fractures into two versions of itself. Let's look at Vinden A for now, since I'm not 100% sure if Vinden B fractured or not. Vinden A definitely did, so here is how it must work. Two versions of Vinden A have to exist, starting from the moment when Marta appears. Her interference fractures Vinden A to create a branching universe, which I am calling Vinden AA. Vinden A is the universe that produces Adam. It is the universe in which Marta B never interferes, Jonas never visits Vinden B, and Jonas grows up to become adult Jonas, and then Adam. But in the universe in which Marta B does interfere, Jonas will go to Vinden B, get killed, and never become Adam. That all makes perfect sense, and the show seems to be on board, though they explain it Oddly, if not poorly, the part that the show seems to drop the ball on, at least so far as I've seen, is that the explanation here is presented as if Finn AA ceases to exist the moment Jonas leaves it. And I understand if you get tricked into thinking that that makes sense. If in Vinden AA, Jonas does not grow up to become Adam and so cannot work to preserve the loop, it would be reasonable to incorrectly assume that this means the loop would collapse and Vinden AA would cease to exist. But that logic doesn't work. Vinden AA has nothing to do with the loop, not really. Vinden AA wouldn't be its own universe with its own loop. Vinden AA would instead be a branch off from Vinden A, supported by Vinden A's loop and Adam and everything else within the loop. What I'm saying is that Vinden AA must inherently be an extant world in which the apocalypse happened, but Jonas does not exist. It is the only thing that logically makes sense, and the show just does not seem to think so, or is maybe being purposefully vague or something? I don't know. I just really kind of feel like they tried to make the logic fit into the infinity symbol motif when it really doesn't fit it very well, and then trying to tie quantum entanglement into that is just... I'm no expert, but I don't think that makes any sense at all either, so I guess I'll just shut up and let the show do whatever it's going to do. There's only two episodes left after all, and there's no sense in arguing with a story I can't change. Besides, who knows, maybe I'm getting myself frustrated for no reason. Like I said, I have kind of lost trust in the writers at this point, which is the majority of my problem. Maybe they do deserve my trust after all, and I will eat my worried words after I see the finale. I really hope that is going to be the case. I really want the end of this show to be as awesome as the beginning was. But back to that glowy yellow light. Jonas says that he thinks he can use it to get back in time to save Marta and Mikkel, and he says that he has, quote, seen what this becomes in the future. 
And I don't know if I'm supposed to believe that. I don't know if I'm supposed to believe that he is right when he says this thing turns into that blue-black thing, or if maybe he's not who I think he is and that's not what he means at all, or, I don't know, something else entirely. I'm really just at this point where I don't know what to believe about anyone or anything, and again, I guess I'll just shut up and let the show get on with itself. Claudia lets slip to Jonas that she has the time travel device, and he is immediately desperate to get his hands on it. Of course he is. If he can use it to go back in time, then he doesn't have to waste his life trying to turn this yellow thing into a blue-black thing. But, quote, it's kaput, or so the German sounds to me. The machine doesn't work, and Claudia suggests that perhaps that's how things were supposed to go. Maybe it will work again at the next point in the 33-year cycle. That is certainly not what Jonas wants to hear, though. And he finally realizes that maybe he shouldn't just blindly trust everyone he speaks to. Not that I think it's going to help. We all remember where this realization took him last time. Marta B, meanwhile, is at Bartas's house. She's trying to explain to him what's going on with Alexander and the power plant and time travel and the apocalypse, and Bartas, to his credit, believes her and helps her. Have I mentioned how much I prefer Bartas B to Bartas A? He tries to call his father, but his dad's all butthurt that his child didn't soothe his emotional wounds for him, so he doesn't answer his phone. And again, Alexander is proving an enormous disappointment to me here. As a matter of fact, he even decides to make things worse in his misapplied guilt. He decides to confess to Charlotte that he's hiding improperly stored nuclear waste, and of course that is going to turn out to be the reason for the apocalypse. You couldn't have just answered the goddamn phone, could you, Alexander? Elsewhere, Ulrich is once again realizing that Mads is the body they found, and so he goes to confront Helgi. Helgi, in this universe, says that she told him to do it. Who is she? Eva, perhaps, or perhaps Claudia. Helga doesn't say. He does, however, say that I have to stop him lying again, except when Ulrich asks who him is, Helgi says, you. So, Ulrich kidnapped Mads in this universe instead of Noah and Helgi? Is that what I'm supposed to think here, or is it something else? Y'all saw that confused look on Ulrich's face after Helgi said that shit? Yeah, that's what my face looks like right about now. Elsewhere, elsewhere, I think in Vinden B, the no-name trinity stabilize a wormhole and travel through. They are going to Vinden A and Vinden B as two separate teams, I think, to help facilitate the wormhole's creation, I suppose, by doing something at two different versions of the power plant, or else they're going to do something entirely different, and I've just fully lost the plot at this point. That is definitely possible. And hell, maybe Old No Name and Baby No Name are in a hypothetical Vinden C at this point. They do go through a door with a giant C on it, after all, while their counterpart's corresponding door is completely blank. It could be a clue, or... Perhaps I've gone mad. But back to Prisoner Marta. Scargirl from Season 2 forces her to strip at gunpoint, and, um, how about no? Genuinely, I wish Marta had just called her bluff here, like, shoot me, bitch. Because this shit is just fucking dumb, especially when Scargirl explains why she's doing this. It is in pursuit of salvation, and spare me from the inherent nonsense of your religious cult. At the Vinden B power plant, Alexander shows Charlotte the room with the waste barrels, while in the woods, Ulrich follows Helgi to the tunnels. He calls Charlotte and leaves her a voicemail, marking this as the moment in the show when someone finally thinks to have Mad's body DNA tested. It is about fucking time. On the forest road, Bartas and Marta are trying to get to the power plant in time to stop Alexander, but they get interrupted by Vinden A's old Francisca and old Magnus. They're tricking Marta B into coming with them, and I think this is the equal and opposite scene to time-traveling Marta fetching Jonas from Vinden A. If there is a Vinden BB, this is when it gets created. Just as Jonas splintered into two versions of himself, Marta B may have splintered into two versions of herself here. I'm not sure of that, given that I'm not sure that Prisoner Marta actually dies at the end of the episode, but that is my theory. And then we get what might be the biggest shock of the episode. Eva is sending her team out on their little apocalypse missions, and yeah, yeah, sure, but hey, 
Here's a question. How the fuck did old man Egon get involved in this? I had better find the fuck out. I am not joking. If this show wasted a bunch of time giving me new versions of scenes that I've seen before and didn't have enough time left over to explain how old man Egon ended up involved in Eva's group, I'm gonna riot. Prisoner Marta, meanwhile, is thankfully not fully naked. She is wearing this horrible white dress and has the St. Christopher medallion around her neck, which is a hint to me that we might finally be about to get an answer regarding those goddamn 1986 pennies from Noah's prototyping way back in season one. I think, actually, that the prototype he was working on back then must actually be very closely tied to what's happening here, because the wormhole in this scene works very differently than we've ever seen it before. It closes around Marta in a swirling vortex, just like the original visor and the later metal cylinder closed around Eric and Helgi during Noah's testing. I think that whatever Noah was doing in season one, it wasn't to perfect the time travel as we were led to believe. It was to help Adam perfect whatever he's doing here. Then again, Adam rips off the St. Christopher medallion before he turns on his machine, so maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. In any case, he claims that he's going to focus the energies of both apocalypses in order to kill Marta's fetus. Both worlds, he says, will extinguish one another. And like, though he's treated as the villain here, I don't feel like destroying both of these nonsense realities is inherently the wrong course of action. It's not ethical, for sure, but maybe just being done with this whole thing is the right way to, you know, be done with this whole thing. I suspect that the ending, whatever it turns out to be, is going to be a bit happier than that, but I guess we'll see. As we get a montage very similar to the montages at the end of season 1 and 2, we see that Hannah appears to be miscarrying while Marta is being subjected to the machine. I wonder if there's anything to that, and I also wonder if anything is going to come of her baby with Egon, given that Egon is the one who comes to her house in this scene, presumably to save her. And as Marta screams and the apocalypse begins, we end on a shot of Francisca B and Magnus B dying together in the blast. I guess you should have listened to your sister, huh, jackass? So, as should be obvious, we are just about at the end of this show, and as I have said in this episode, I am not largely optimistic. I am trying to stay positive. I certainly don't want to go into it in a, you know, negative headspace. I don't want to set myself up to be overly pessimistic such that I bring the show down. But the previous two episodes were not largely enjoyable to me. Um, and these two episodes are even worse on that front. Season three in general has been a downward spiral for me. And that's a very weird place to be in emotionally. I am trying to simultaneously prepare myself both for the possibility of potentially having to eat my words, uh, watch the final two episodes and go, oh my god, it was perfect all along, what I thought were missteps turned out not to be, hooray, let's all rejoice, or the alternate path of, oh no, season three was a bust, I did not enjoy season three, what do I do with myself now? Um, so I'm certainly hoping for one of these outcomes above the other, because truly, I have loved this show. I really have. The first two seasons, I adored them. Um, there were a few things that annoyed me here and there, but overall, it was such an exceptional time travel story that I was really blown away and incredibly optimistic as I moved into season three, and season three has not met me where my expectations were. Um, like I've said throughout this episode, there are certain writing flaws that are just... I don't understand some of the choices that are being made. The retreading of scenes that we've seen before is growing truly ridiculous. It is wasting time. It feels like treading water. And I am 
increasingly frustrated on that front and also on the front of not seeing a significant amount of room left for an ending that will be both emotionally satisfying to the narrative and logistically satisfying. The big appeal of the show for me was in its jigsaw puzzle nature and in its exploration of time travel via determinism and I am growing increasingly convinced that it is not going to keep that same energy for the ending. So I suppose there is nothing else for me to do besides simply watch the final two episodes and find out where exactly I'm going to land. Um, if you were interested in seeing my reactions to those final two episodes, you can get those for $5 per month on my Patreon. If you sign up for the $5 tier to get those reactions, you will of course get all of my reactions recorded in the past, including reactions to Umbrella Academy, Squid Game, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, You Season 1, the first two seasons of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and plenty more. If you are interested in helping me to decide what it is that I'm going to be watching in the future, both reacting to and covering on the podcast, then you will want to sign up for any Patreon tier above $1. $1 and up patrons get access to all of my polls determining what it is that I watch from week to week. If you are not interested in supporting me on Patreon, it would also be appreciated if you could leave a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice, or if you could talk about the show on social media, or if you could recommend it to a friend. Any little bit helps and is incredibly appreciated, but of course, the number one thing that I appreciate you doing is just listening at all. So, as always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you join me again next week when I cover the finale of Dark, and I hope you join me the week after that when I will begin coverage of the Netflix adaptation of Archive 81. It closes around Marta in a swirling vortex just like the original... Original? <laughs>